Good morning. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, you once were far away and have brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing walls of hostility by setting, by setting aside in his flesh with the law, with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you, who were far away and peace to those who were who were near for through him we both have access to the father by one spirit consequently you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with god's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with christ jesus himself as the chief cornerstone In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How are we doing? (laughs) Fine. It's good. Okay, um, what rich verses we've just heard. Powerful verses. Um, And it's really important that we get a good understanding of what that text is um, talking about, what the Word of God is talking about here. And this text is very specific uh, about both Jews and Gentiles first being reconciled to God, but also being reconciled to each other. It's what I would call this vertical and horizontal life of a Christian. The vertical being how we relate to our Father in heaven, but then also how we relate to each other horizontally. The vertical and horizontal, the dependence on God and the interdependence on one another. It's what I'd call the beautiful struggle. It's uh, not always easy to go here and also go horizontal. Um, maybe that's just me, but that's not always easy. So I call it the beautiful struggle, because it's wonderful to be in relationship with God. It's wonderful to be in relationship with each other. But as a family, sometimes it can be tricky. If it's anything like my family, anyway. <laughs> Ephesians 2, uh, 11 to 22, for me can be split into three units. Um, the first uh, verses we heard, 11 to 13, it very much talks about how we are cut off from God. 
separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship, foreigners without hope, without God. And this is very specific to the Gentiles. It's really important for us to understand from the days of Abraham onwards, God through election chose to deal with the Jewish people in a saving way. However, when Jesus comes, salvation spills over to everyone. All nations, all people, all communities. That's all of us, by the way. That's a good thing. That's an amen moment, yeah? Just checking we're all still here and excited about the truth in that. Um, And that's unit one. I suppose the second unit would be verses 14 to 18. If the first part is very much about how we are cut off from our Father in heaven, the second unit is very much what it looks like um, now we've been brought near. Now, because of Jesus, how God fixed it, because of the blood of Christ, he himself is our peace, made two groups into one, destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, creating one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, reconciling both to God and humanity, death to hostility, peace to those far away, and peace to those near, access to the Father through one spirit. This is what we are living in. And then the third unit of these verses, 19 to 22, we're fellow citizens. What does it look like? What are we actually living in? We're now fellow citizens. We're God's people, members of his household. Jesus, our cornerstone. Building together, being built together. A dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is what we are as a body of believers. The blood of Christ, his death, removes the enmity between God and Jew, God and Gentile, Jew and Gentile, and also between every ethnic group. God has become our peace. We have unity, community, oneness in Christ. Amen? Happy days. End of sermon. I'm going to go. Bring your share time. Yeah? (laughs) Oh, if only. The question we've got is, is this actually our reality? That's the question. Is this unity, this community, this oneness which we read in Ephesians 2, is this our reality? If we look at the news, if we look around us, I'd say it's anything but this. And we know since Genesis 3, sin has corrupted everything. So you may have heard the phrase, living in the now and not yet, is where we tend to sit as believers. But in saying that, the fruits of Ephesians 2, what we've just read should be evident in our church offering hope to Peckham South East London and beyond what I wanted to call this sermon is uh, what's to call it reality check because I think it is a reality check you can't read verses like this without wondering how this relates to our lives and how it relates to our communities For us to live in the reality of reconciliation, 
we're going to have to wrestle and fight and grapple for this reality because when we do look around our communities and our homes and our families and our work and our church, if we're honest, we don't always see peace, reconciliation, unity that Jesus died for. I'm just, this is just the truth. A guy called Jim Wallace, who wrote a book called American's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege and a Bridge to a New America. Nice light reading if anybody wants to attempt to buy that book. He says this, the origin of the church occasioned a glorious multicultural display of unity and evangelism with 3,000 converts that first day, clearly including many ethnicities and races. All this made the early churches quite radical in their historical context. And the message of inclusion was extended to every cultural context that Christians entered going forward. The welcoming diversity of the early church attracted great attention and made the new community even more evangelistic. Unity in Christ was meant to be one of the most important pillars of the church. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This text powerfully asserts that there are the three most divisive barriers between human beings. Race, class, gender. Are meant to be overcome in the new human community that had formed around Jesus. This was meant to be a declaration of the body of Christ. Unity, however, doesn't mean homogeneity. When we hear these powerful verses, all one in Christ, being built together, one new humanity, it does not mean that we ignore people's differences and traditions to create one Christian culture. It does not mean that we can't celebrate different cultures while being under the banner of Jesus Christ. The danger in disregarding difference is that we risk creating a dominant generic Christian monoculture, a one-size-fits-all model, while ignoring the complex tapestry of the community surrounding our local church. There shouldn't be a prevailing Christian culture dictating church life in diverse environments. Christianity no more equates to whiteness than being British should just be associated with being middle class. This is especially relevant in Peckham. And I am convinced if we do not acknowledge and value the differences, backgrounds, experiences and cultures in the body of Christ, we risk undermining the rich, beautiful work of Ephesians 2. One humanity does not mean ignoring the differences God made in humanity. So how do we fight for this? Well, the strategy, as I've alluded to already, must be vertical and horizontal. It has to be deliberate and intentional. It has to be full of empathy, compassion, and grace. 
And it's really disconcerting that I can't see any of your faces <laughs> because I don't know whether you're smiling or, or not. <laughs> I don't know. So I'm just going to keep going. Um, <laughs> do we believe we are in Christ for hope of the world? See, society needs hope where the dividing wall of hostility is everywhere. We see arguments between the left and the right, the working class and the middle class, the black and brown and the white. <laughs> those who wear Crocs and those who don't wear Crocs. <laughs> Arsenal, Tottenham sports. We see it everywhere. It's everywhere around us. <laughs> the Christian needs to be fighting for the reality of Ephesians 2 and bring hope. For us to live in the reality of Ephesians 2 and to reconnect the people of Jesus, particularly in this extended time of isolation we've just come out of, uh, we are going to need to, soaked in prayer, and the Spirit do a few things. So, here's just a list of some things which I feel God has laid on my heart for us to really live in the reality of Ephesians 2. I'm a very practical person, so this is where we're going to go. So the first one we need to do is speak up. Like Jesus did, like Paul did, speak up. Anything that excludes the marginalised, we're going to have to speak up about. We can't just ignore things. If you're talking serious about bringing peace, we're going to have to do that. Paul did that with Peter. Peter on a, I mean, we all love Peter because we can relate to Peter, but Peter regularly got this wrong in how he was engaging with the Gentiles and every now and again Paul had to pull him up on that. Jesus did this on more of a systems level challenging King Herod, calling him a fox. These are the things that we're called to do. Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, tweeted that this week, when opinions can't be voiced or cries of injustice aren't heard, everybody loses. Our humanity is deepened and made more profound and our lives flourish when we commit to engage with everyone regardless of their faith, belief, opinion or background. We need to speak up. Secondly, if we're going to really live out the reality of Ephesians 2 in our church and in the community around us, we're going to have to leave our comfort zones just like Jesus did. I'm sorry to break it to some of us or all of us. It's not actually about us. It's about him. For Jesus to unify God to man and Jew to Gentile, it cost him everything. He was living, I'm imagining, quite comfy in heaven, being worshipped, and yet he came down to be despised and crucified. He stepped off the throne. What's the cost for us to leave our comfort zones to really live out Ephesians 2? Number three, we're going to have to diversify our friendship groups. We're going to have to be really honest. Uh, as you'll get to know me, um, I'm pretty honest with this stuff. So let's just be real. There's some black and brown people in this room who do not have any white friends. There's some white people in this room who do not have any black or brown friends. There's some middle class people in this room who don't no engage with any working class people and there's some working class people who do not engage with middle class people. And I could go on and on and on. 
to live out reconciliation, to live out peace, we are going to have to diversify our friendships just like Jesus did. Before anybody accuses me of not linking this back to the Bible, Jesus did this. He had fishermen, he had uh, missionaries, he had tax collectors, he had nationalists, different backgrounds in his immediate circle. He relied on, broke bread with, prayed with, wheat with, took on the world with. Who are you inviting into your home? Who are you hanging out with? Are they different? Are you crossing the room? Are you crossing the divide? Just a provocation. Next, we're going to have to become culturally, contextually competent, sensitive and humble, just like Jesus did. Jesus was born in a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular context. He embraced the customs and the culture of the area he was born in. Do we do this? Do we know the history and the joy and the pain and the things to celebrate in the community around us? Do we know what matters to the people who were born and raised here? Do we know the hurt? Do we humble ourselves and listen and take a posture of learning? Or do we just stay in our silos and who we meet at the school gate, we meet at the school gate, but we don't actually engage around us? Next, we're going to have to fight and reach out for the marginalised, just like Jesus did. There's plenty of examples of that. A woman about to be stoned, a woman at the world. There's plenty of examples of that. True love for our neighbour must include a passion for social justice. True love for our neighbour must include a passion for social justice. Next, we're going to have to contextualise the gospel message just like Paul did and appreciate that it's not a one-size-fits-all delivery of the gospel message. What does contextualization mean? Contextualization of the Bible involves an attempt to present the gospel in a culturally relevant way, revealing the unchanging truths of Jesus within the unique and changing context of the culture and worldviews. It does not mean watering down the word of God. It doesn't mean that. But how we apply the gospel in our lives and to people is really important. And Paul did this. He became all things to all people. In the synagogue, Paul's mission to the Jews and the temples, the God-fearing people, his own people, he, he spoke in one way. Agora. Paul's mission to the marketplace, essentially coffee shops, restaurants, pubs and bookshops, contextualise the mission a different way. Areopagos. Paul's mission to the present-day culture, philosophers, academics, universities. You see... Same message, but contextualise it a little bit differently depending on who he's talking to. We're going to need to do that. Peckham's quite a diverse place, if you haven't noticed. Very, very different. I was born in South East London um, a few years ago. And uh, Peckham's changed. For the, in some spaces, for the better. Definitely. Um, but it's changed. And there's lots of different people and how we engage, how we evangelise is really important. We're going to need to diversify who is leading what in a church context, like the early church did. 
best examples, Antioch. The church leadership team was wonderfully heterogeneous. The team comprised of Barnabas from um, Cyprus and a black man called Simeon, a.k.a. Niger, which is Latin for black. There was Lucius, who was possibly black, as he was from Cyrene, North Africa. The team also include, included uh, Manin, who was raised among royalty, and finally Paul, a Jew. Um, as one theologian said, this was a church staff at Antioch, a racially integrated group of go-getters who Luke says in verse 1 of this particular, uh, these verses, were prophets and teachers. They were a microcosm of what the church would become in the world. This was no accident, but rather a deliberate work of God. I'm really proud that when I look at the leadership team in this church, it is really different. But I don't think we should stop. <laughs> I think we should continue looking and continuing to reflect the communities around us. While I'm here on leadership, we need to review leadership power dynamics on a regular basis like the early church did. Um, both Hakeem and Kate Coleman spoke earlier in the year on Act 6, uh, this very famous conflict with the widows. So I won't go into that because <laughs> their sermons would be better than anything I would have said. But it's important just to remember that in that context where there was conflict, it was the minority marginalised group who were empowered to lead on that particular issue. So the question really is, in what context in our church community can that be replicated? So everybody feels part of the family. I'm coming into land now. Two more things I just want to say on this. Some of us, particularly in the context of unity, diversity and community, we really need to forgive. There's some things which we need to forgive people for. C.S. Lewis said this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. It's hard, but we're called to do that. Equally, some of us need to repent. True repentance repairs what was ripped and returns what was ripped off. The possibly one of the greatest poets and songwriters of the 21st century, Miss Lauren Hill, put it like this. <laughs> Every man wants to act like he's exempt, needs to get down on his knees and repent. We do often think that way. It's not me, it's them. No. It's all of us. This is what is required to live in the reality of Ephesians 2. Like, it's lovely verses, it's rich text. But what I've just spoken about is the reality of playing this out in our day-to-day -day lives. Being soaked and guided in prayer and in the Spirit. Duncan Campbell, who wrote this incredible small book, Scottish Preacher, uh, the price of power of revival says this, nothing but a Holy Ghost revival will meet the desperate need of the hour. 
The early church, the men of Pentecost had something beyond mere human influence. We are going to need him, Holy Spirit, in everything that we do and say for this church to be the true hope for the community around us. There's no other way. We're not equipped to do this on our own, but in Christ we can. So we must take this richness of Ephesians 2 and seriously uh, fight for it to play out in our reality. So what I just want to do now, I know I've packed in a lot in about 20 minutes, but I'd love us just to, if you're comfortable, just to close your eyes. And I just want to ask God just to, to prompt us in some of the things that I've said, and I'll repeat them quickly, where we need to fight for the reality of Ephesians 2 in our lives. Um, for some of us it might be that we need to speak up more for some of us it might be that we need to leave our comfort zones and connect to more people for others it might be that we need a review of our friendship groups and diversify for some we might need to spend some time becoming more culturally competent and sensitive and humble to the community around us and learning more about the things people care about For others, it might be that we need to stand up and fight for the marginalised. For for those who are in a position, or in fact, all of us who are evangelists, whether it's speaking up here or in their workspace or whoever they're talking to, to think about how you can contextualise the gospel. Maybe not just even in a church context. For some of us, we might think, whoever's in a leadership context... Do we get to, how can we diversify our leadership without it being tokenistic? And for others, it might be just examining the leadership power dynamics. For some of us, it may well be that we need to forgive somebody right now. And for others, it might be that we need to repent. For the next few seconds, I just want you to just to think that through. And then I'm going to pray and then the band can come back up. So I'm just going to have a bit of quiet for a few seconds now and ask the Spirit just to reveal the will of our Father in heaven for our lives. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you've brought us from this this place where we were once separated from you we were once excluded we were once foreigners without hope, without God and I thank you that you fixed that by sending your son Jesus and through his blood we are now at peace with you but Lord I thank you that also that we, while we enjoy this vertical relationship with you we're also encouraged to have this horizontal relationship with our brothers and sisters, Lord. We need that. We need you to help us in that reality. And I thank you that we are now fellow citizens with you, members of your household. We thank you that you are always our cornerstone, King Jesus. Help us to build together, continue to build us together. We lift you up. We praise your name. Amen.